episode 105 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. My name is uh, Sam Adams and I'm a helicopter flight instructor living in British Columbia, Canada, but uh, originally from um, the Southeast United States. What is going on, AV Nation, and welcome back to episode number 105 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Today, I am talking with a Sam Adams, aka Sam Adams. You can follow him on Instagram, and if you have heard of him, you might have heard of him because he documented his entire helicopter training from beginning to 100 hours. He did it in four months up in British Columbia. Him and his instructor, you can go find those videos, and you can go see his progress and how he has progressed. It's a very, very useful tool for anyone that wants to become a helicopter pilot to see what he did, to see how he trained, and to see his success and even some of his failures that he had on YouTube. It's kind of a, a cool thing that he was able to document all of that. And he learned that from Gary B, which I'm sure all of you have as well. But go ahead and document and create that great content that you can help other people in the future as well. But Aviation, this is a fun episode. I really enjoyed talking with Sam. I think I've talked to Sam over a year now trying to get him on the podcast. It was probably my fault mostly with my schedule and not being able to make it work. But the staycation is the perfect time to get this going. Aviation, if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. We have over 500 reviews. We are going to be picking out those five shirt winners very soon. I'll probably announce it on my Instagram page. So go ahead and stay tuned for that. I also want to give a shout out to the Patreon of the week. Today's Patreon of the week is Bailey Davis. Bailey, thank you so much for being a Patreon of the week. I appreciate your support and couldn't do without the Patreon. Aviation, I don't want to keep you any longer. So I hope you're having a great day. I hope you're staying safe. Without any further ado, Here's Hey, Sam Adams. Hey, Sam, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be on here with you. Yeah, I'm pumped, man. It's it's uh, going to be fun. Your account was brought to my attention by my buddy, Glenn. He, uh, I think he's been hounding me to do this interview for over a year now. Yeah, Glenn and I have been talking from pretty much the beginning of my uh, career here. And uh, yeah, it's been cool to uh, get to know him over the years. Yeah, Glenn's a good dude. He's uh he's helped me out a lot. So shout out to Glenn. He's the man for getting this to set up. But uh, Glenn probably wants to know too. What's the uh, original inspiration behind you even wanting to start flying to be a pilot? Uh, what what kind of struck your interest in this industry? Man, so I was you know always interested in aviation from you know a kid, and I always thought that um, since my dad was in the military, I would try to go the military route and. Um, and eventually, you know, maybe fly uh, planes. But um, when I was in uh, high school, I kind of decided that I wanted to go a more engineering route. And uh, so I kind of got distracted from it for a few years. Um, but it was always something that I had um, and wanted to do, just didn't know the right timing. What was what original? What was the timing for you? Like what kind of clicked in your mind to step away from engineering and kind of get back into flying? Man, that's really hard to say. Um, but I was uh, I was working in the cable uh, water sports industry and building uh, cable wakeboarding parks pretty much all across North America. Um, and I had been doing that for about 10 years. And uh, I slowly started to um, get a little bit uh, tired of it and kind of wanted to do something a little different. 
And so I always thought that um, with um, my company that I would be able to eventually afford, you know, my own plane or my own helicopter um, for private use. And as I was getting older, it kind of, you know, came to the realization that that might not be a possibility. And so I figured, well, if I want to do this, maybe I should just do it as a career. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, if I want, if I want to be able to fly and own a plane or a helicopter, maybe I just need to do that for my career. That's a good point. And I feel like a lot of people kind of come to that kind of realization on their own, and they think that just how I mean, I guess like how expensive aviation really is, and owning a helicopter, getting your ratings and stuff like that. Sometimes it's best just to go into the industry, and uh, so you can fly that as well. I, I had a question. So what? Right, you might have to explain a little exactly what your job was at first. So you would build kind of cables for water sports and and lakes and rivers and stuff. Yeah, mostly lakes. Uh, so basically, uh, a cable wakeboarding system is like um, essentially a ski lift over water um, that has ropes attached to it so that you can wakeboard or water ski without a boat. Um, we built these parks all over North America. Um, I think I personally built 15 of the full-size cable parks, which go around in a large circle and up to like eight people can ride it at a time. Oh, dang. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And, um, and wakeboarding was something that I got into pretty early on. Um, and I was able to kind of combine my engineering background with my love for wakeboarding and use those two passions to uh, kind of propel that career. What was your life like when you were doing that? Were you gone all the time? It sounds like a very kind of a time-consuming job to build something like that. Yeah, I was essentially gone all the time. Um, so I was actually telling uh, one of my, my friends last night about, um, I think 2013, we built six full-size cable parks and they take anywhere from a month to two months to actually assemble on the ground um, and get running at the site. So I spent over 290 days in a hotel um, in 2013. So it was a pretty crazy year. Hopefully you got and to keep those points. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of hotel points. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that was, that was a pretty crazy year. Um, and, and it was a lot of fun. We, we had a lot of fun uh, doing that. And I've met people and have friends all over North America. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a really awesome industry to be a part of. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's, it's interesting to hear people kind of have a job, have a good job, a job that they like. I mean, obviously every job has its pros and cons, but it sounds like you did like your job. It kind of fulfilled a need for your engineering and kind of sounds like a, um, kind of fun, like sport and uh, take things to the next level. Like wakeboarding is pretty, pretty intense, and especially with cables can be fun. Um, how difficult was it for you to walk away from that job? How a lot of people kind of are, might be in your shoes right now, say they're in their twenties or their thirties or maybe in their forties and they always wanted to be a pilot and maybe had the same realization as you. They're an accountant or they're an engineer and they always wanted their own plane, but they realize that maybe they need to buy or maybe they can't buy a plane with the job that they currently have, but they're looking to want to go fly and make that step. How hard was it for you to walk away from your job and go into a career in aviation? And it's, it's super interesting to hear you ask that because not many people ask how hard it was to leave. And it was incredibly hard to leave, um, mostly because of the relationships that I built, built within that industry. Um, I was friends and still am friends with so many of the cable park owners that trusted me with my engineering experience um, and expertise on 
cable wakeboarding systems and um, being how passionate I was about wakeboarding as well made it increasingly um, more difficult to step away from that industry. And uh, it was a really tough decision to, to leave um, because I still am passionate about engineering and, and wakeboarding and water sports in general. Um, so to, to leave that behind was really tough. And I definitely have days that I really miss that, um, those times because it was, it was a really interesting product and it was a, um, very unique system. So, um, it was really fun to be able to travel all over North America and, uh, set those cable systems up. Do you have one cable system or kind of, a, I don't even call it a water park, but I guess it's not really a water park. Do you have one that you're like super proud of and you always think of and, or one maybe if anyone wants to go wakeboarding, it's like you definitely need to go check out this. This is the best of the best. Man, they're all so unique and also great. Um, I would say one of the, uh, one of the coolest ones we set up was probably in Atlanta. It was the first, um, cable park, uh, to have two counter rotating cable systems. So you can have them rotate either direction and one direction might suit a rider who rides, um, left foot forward versus a rider who rides right foot forward. And we had, you know, the first in North America to have two counter rotating cable systems. And it turned out to be a really cool park. And that's uh, terminus wake park in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, there's also some really great parks um, in Sacramento, um, California. Uh, those two parks are are incredibly beautiful, um, and yeah, there's 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 cable parks all over North America, um, and they all have their own unique setup, which is really cool. That's awesome. That's cool. It sounds like a really cool and uh, uh, like just a unique job. You know, it's a uh, one thing I always talk about is aviation and how many cool jobs there are, but even outside of aviation, like if you really are passionate about something and love something, you can truly make a living in it. You know, it's like never in the, my wildest dreams would I ever think of hearing someone building water or uh, cable parks for wakeboarding. You know, it's just like, it's not like the, the world that I, uh, that I'm involved in or even think about, but it's like, you can make a good living. You can have a good job doing that. So that's really cool. Yeah, you, you really can. And, and it was something that I was super passionate about, which is, you know, I strongly believe that you should do something that you're really strongly passionate about as a career. Um, and you can have multiple passions in your life and just kind of use those to kind of steer you in the right direction the whole way. Um, which I think is really important. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Now let's kind of talk about you in aviation. So obviously we just talked about how hard it was to walk away uh, from your previous job to, to make this jump. What was it like once you finally made the jump? Was it kind of love at first sight almost or did it take a while for you to kind of uh, to really love aviation and uh, kind of be excited about what you're doing? Um, I would say honestly, the first intro flight that I had in a helicopter pretty much solidified, um, my desire to want to be a helicopter pilot. Uh, so it was a pretty quick transition. Now there's still a lot of uncertainty involved with that. And I think that's just the start of a very slippery slope <laughs> into, uh, into aviation. So there was definitely a lot of uncertainty along the way. Um, but I'll never forget, uh, the first time, um, I kind of, had somewhat of a control of a helicopter hovering. Uh, that was 
that was a pretty special moment and uh, one that I will never forget for sure. A lot of people talk about kind of their first flight in a fixed wing. Most of the people I've interviewed on this podcast have been fixed wing operators and they talk about their first flight and kind of leaving the ground and they look left, look right. And it's just like they fall in love immediately. What's it like on your first flight on a helicopter? I know you were talking about the first time you hovered and obviously it's probably not the first time that you go up on a flight as you learn how to hover. I mean, it might be, I don't really know, but what what is what's it like going on a helicopter flight for your first time? To me, helicopters are very foreign and I don't really understand them too much. I just kind of kind of see all the bad news that you see in the news and stuff and kind of stay away from helicopters. Like they just don't make sense to me. They just like when the engine stops, it just seems like it's just going to fall to the ground. And I know you have auto rotate and all this kind of helicopter jargon and stuff that you're going to say about how safe it is. But what's it like, man? Like what's it really like to fly a helicopter, especially for the first time when you're a, a new student? Man, I mean, it's overwhelming, I think is the, the best word to uh, describe it. it uh, there's so much going on and you really have to, um, I guess the best thing you can possibly do would be to relax, but that's probably the last thing you can physically do as a new student flying. Um, and for me, when you know, I went up on an intro flight and we, we were able to lift off the ground vertically for the first time, it was this just sense of um, complete awe of how this was possible that really hooked me. Um, and then the challenge to then master that skill um, was a huge allure because the machine is so complicated and to be in control of that machine and to be able to manipulate it in um, various ways is just truly incredible. What kind of helicopter did you start out in? Uh, I started in the Cabri G2. Is that a normal uh, helicopter for someone to start or is that pretty rare? Yeah, it's a pretty common training helicopter. I wouldn't say it's as common as the R22, um, but it's a more recent modern trainer um, that I still fly now. Um, and that was what my first intro flight was in. What were your, uh, I guess, going into being a helicopter? Obviously, you wanted to do this for a career, but what was, so say, during before you go on your first lesson, if you could have your wildest dream come true, what was kind of your your hopes, dreams, and goals for you in uh, becoming a helicopter pilot? Did you have kind of like a, uh, a dream board where you had at the top, like, I want to fly people to oil platforms or I want to do cool Red Bull stuff or like what was kind of like your dream goal before you started your training? I would say most likely something in the search and rescue realm or the EMS realm or the wildest dream would be something along the lines of camera operator working, um, you know, with, uh, really big, expensive cameras mounted on the side of a helicopter would be, be cool. incredible. Film some Tom Cruise movies or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of uh, the listeners follow Fred North on Instagram and the stuff that he posts is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty crazy. Would you say your your dreams have changed since you've come into doing your training and since you become a pilot and have been an instructor? Or do you think you've stayed pretty much that's still kind of like your goals and what you'd like to do? No, I'd say they're they're still, you know, approximately the same. It's a long road to get to that point. Um, but it's definitely something that I'm still highly interested in, in pursuing. For someone that's listening right now, they're, they're hearing you talk about kind of your goals and what you're doing. And you just said it's a long road to get to that. I mean, we focused on this podcast about the road of a fixed wing pilot. 
not as much the road of a helicopter pilot. So what does the road look like? So say someone's listening to this right now, they've kind of thought helicopters, maybe fixed wing, they listen to you and you sway them to go toward helicopter. What does the road look like? I mean, to we don't have to have like a set job, but to like the, the typical route, the typical road for someone to have a, a successful or good career as a helicopter pilot. Yeah, so it can vary across the world. I'm specifically mostly familiar with the road in in Canada and a little bit in the U.S. Um, just because I ended up um, pursuing my career in Canada, um, even though I'm a U.S. citizen. So most of the time in the U.S., uh, people in helicopters are going to do their their trading and build up to um, a flight instructor rating and then flight instruct for the majority of their hours to start. Um, that's usually not the case in Canada. Uh, the requirements to be a flight instructor are much higher in Canada. Um, just as a benchmark, there's there's a couple other qualifications, but you have to have 250 hours pilot in command just to start the rating. Um, and then um, the... Uh, Instructor rating itself is a 30-hour dual instruction, and there's no leniency on that. It's a hard, hard rule on the amount of hours you have to do um, for the dual instruction for the flight instructor rating in Canada. So the the entry to flight instruction in Canada is not as common. Um, usually in Canada, uh, after getting your commercial license, you're going to spend anywhere from two to even four years working as a ground crew for a company, uh, fueling helicopters, loading passengers, giving safety briefings, uh, um, and doing ground crew type operations until you can build trust with the company to start doing some ferry flights and eventually get flying for tours or whatever that company is involved in. And that's when you have your rating and when you're qualified to fly the helicopter? Yeah. Oh wow. Absolutely. So it's gotta be it's a, pretty tough. You know, you're it, feeling these plan at least feeling these helicopters just hoping to get a chance. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's it's not a uh it's not an easy road and um you have to be prepared for that going in. That's crazy. Uh so what what did you do? So you're in your track right now, you are a an instructor, like you said in the in the intro. Uh what did you have to do to build up to that? What did you do to kind of build your time and to to get a slot that you have? Man, so I got extremely lucky. My my story is unlike <clears throat> anyone that I've ever heard. Um, but basically, I uh, came up to BC Helicopters uh, to do my training. And uh, Misha Gelb, who's the uh, uh, chief pilot here, he was my instructor. And uh, he has a pretty active YouTube channel um, called Pilot Yellow. So we filmed my entire training. No um, way. Yeah, we filmed every bit of it. And I had been, uh, I had been watching a ton of Gary Vee before, uh, before moving up here and, and deciding to take this career on. And, you know, he was always heavily um, advocating to document, not create. So I figured it would be cool to document my entire training. And since Misha had a YouTube channel, that seemed like, you know, a perfect opportunity to, you know, document my training and then put it out on 
YouTube so that people could see what it's like to go from zero to a hundred. Um, yeah. Were you okay so, with that right away? Obviously Gary V talked you into it, but like, were you all right with seeing people with seeing the mistakes you make as a young pilot? You know, were you okay with that being out there on the internet? Yeah. I mean, I was, it, it was an adjustment being on camera cause I'm, I, I wasn't, and I don't know that I am to this day naturally good on camera. It, really depends. But when you're flying a helicopter, and especially in those early days, uh, it's really funny to look back at those videos because you can see how fatigued and how much I'm concentrating on every single element of, of that helicopter. And now it just is painful to watch how difficult it was for me to do the simplest tasks while flying a helicopter. It's funny that you bring that up right now because I'm actually, I pulled up on uh, the <laughs> on YouTube right now. I think it's, uh, he went solo. Is that one of your videos? That's one of the videos. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm watching it right now. That's so funny. But yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting to have that documented because obviously, you know, as a pilot, like you said, like it, it takes a while for you to get comfortable to you to feel, to be the professional pilot you're going to be. And there's a lot of mistakes that come up on the way. Um, it just kind of seems like that'd be a very intimidating thing knowing that you have the, I mean, 12,000 people watch this. He has 75,000 subscribers. Like that's a, that's a lot for a new pilot to come in and uh, to be judged and have a lot of people backseat fly for him, you know? You know, I would say 99% of the comments were extremely positive and everyone seemed to really enjoy the series. And I, I knew that it would be a good series because it was something that, I would have wanted to watch when I was thinking about becoming a helicopter pilot. And Misha had the most videos on the topic, um, but they weren't in like any sort of order. Um, so I figured if we went from start to finish from zero to a hundred hours, because uh, a hundred hours is the commercial requirement in Canada, that people would be really interested in the series. And it turned out to be um, you know, a very uh, helpful series and people to this day still message me and talk to me about it. So it's something that I'm really proud of and, and super happy to have documented. Yeah, as you should. I mean, like you said, this is something that people want to see. They want to know what it's going to look like, how they're going to go from zero to 100, like you said, how they're going to, the mistakes that they're going to make. They can kind of judge their process based on where you are now and how you went through your process because they see you as a successful helicopter pilot and you can be their benchmark for kind of understanding what the process looks like. Yeah. And I mean, I will definitely say that the GoPro stabilization uh, and the fisheye lens definitely makes me look like a better pilot than I am. And in most of the videos, especially, you know, Misha is, is a very good editor. So there's, there's definitely, um, you know, some, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's funny. You can't give I out would, your tips and secrets, man. You got to keep well, those to the, close to I the just, chest. <laughs> I just, uh, I just want to be real, real with you guys. You know, it's, uh, it definitely makes me look better than I actually am in most of those videos. So don't, don't get discouraged by, you know, my level of, of flying at a certain hour mark or whatever like that. It's, uh, everyone has their own pace and accelerates differently at different times. Yeah, everyone struggles. Like you said, everyone accelerates differently at different times. Everyone struggles with different things. If you struggle with something that maybe someone else thought was the easiest thing in the world, that doesn't mean you're a bad pilot. This is your own adversity that you have to come across and your own adversity that you have to cross to, to enter this career and to have a good career. So everyone faces adversity. You just got to power through and get through it. 
yeah, that's, that's a huge part of, uh, flying is just keeping, um, yourself motivated to keep going and, and not get, uh, too hard on yourself for having a bad flight. Cause everyone's going to have a bad flight, even in your career. You oh know, my you're gosh. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you have 10,000 hours or 20 hours, you're going to have a bad flight and you're going to land and be like, well, I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What, um, so obviously you can look back and rewatch all your training. What, what in, can you remember right now that was something that you really struggled with? That was just the hardest maybe concept or a way of flying an air, a helicopter. Just like what was the toughest part for you or were there multiple things that you struggled with? I would say the biggest thing I struggled with was auto rotations and just judging distance, um, descent rate and where I was actually going to end up. Um, it's funny now because, uh, you know, when I'm instructing students, I kind of know where the helicopter is going, um, most of the time. And, uh, <laughs> and it's always funny to see how late, uh, a student might notice that we're either going to come up short or we're going to, you know, overshoot our spot. And I remember in my training, Misha always asking me, how's your spot look? How's your spot look? Are you short or long? And I'm just looking at it and I have no idea. So I just, I'm like, well, I think we're going to be long. And he's like, nope, you're going to be short. And I'm like, how does he know? And sure enough, he was right. And now, you know, when we enter an auto rotation, um, at about, you know, a thousand feet AGL, I, I can pretty well tell what's going to happen here. And, you know, the student is, you know, usually a few seconds behind the aircraft at that point. Uh, so that was something I struggled with for a very long time. And even, you know, after my training was done was something that I still had to work on really hard to get, um, proficient with it, to be able to instruct auto rotations. It's a, it's a very unique, um, phase of flight and requires a lot of practice to get good. Yeah. I mean, it, Go ahead and explain a little bit because just imagine, I mean, imagine there's some people here that might be like 15, 16. They don't really know fully about helicopters and what you're talking about. Uh, auto rotation is one of the things that kind of like terrifies me about a helicopter because it's like your last line of defense, right? It's when you, you lose your engine or you lose power and you're kind of just like free falling. And then you auto, I mean, I'll let you explain it from here, but I don't really have the best way to explain it. <laughs> Yeah. So essentially you, you lose your engine and the helicopter starts to descend, um, towards the ground. So you, uh, use the, uh, pitch of your blades and allow the airflow to, you know, go from, uh, below you up through your rotor disc and kind of power your rotor disc as you descend. Um, and then when you get close to the ground, you, you do a flare, which helps two things. It helps reduce your vertical descent rate. And then it also helps reduce your speed. Um, and from from there, uh, coming out of the flare, you're able to then use the collective to cushion the landing with the um, RPM that you stored in the rotor system. And it, when done correctly, it's an incredibly precise um, maneuver, um, and it can it can definitely um, it can definitely save your life. So uh, it's something that we practice a lot and. Uh, and make sure that all of our students are, you know, proficient uh, with. What's the toughest thing that most students or even you yourself found without a rotation? I mean, you mentioned judging distance. Is that kind of the toughest thing or is it managing power? Is it 
what's the just the hardest thing that most people seem to get caught up with on auto rotation? I would say judging distance. Um, but there's a lot that goes on with um, with auto rotations, and because it's such a fast maneuver, um, relatively compared to to other things that you can really slow down um, with helicopters, it 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 usually causes the the student to get extremely tense, um, and they don't they stop flying the helicopter, and when the helicopter is in auto rotation it still flies. Everything still, you know, operates like it normally would. But if you don't spend a lot of time in that auto rotation phase of flight, you don't learn the sight picture that's needed um, to be proficient. And, you know, we spend a lot of time flying straight and level, like I'm sure you did in your training. And you learn the sight and picture for straight and level at various airspeeds and you kind of learn how the nose attitude relates to those. And you have to kind of do the same with auto rotations. You have to be comfortable in that phase of flight um, so that you can just fly the helicopter. And yeah, I, mean, I feel like you, that kind of goes back with uh, fixed wing guys too. It's when you, when you have some kind of situation, when any kind of emergency pops up, you have to remember first and most. And the most important thing is to fly the airplane or in your case, fly the helicopter. And that seems to kind of trick up a lot of students. It seems to trick up a lot of people in emergencies. And there's been accidents, I'm sure, in helicopters too, where they can focus on the one point where they stopped flying the aircraft, where they their number one goal was maybe something other than making sure the plane was still flying, making sure you're still in control of the airplane. It sounds like that's the same thing for helicopters too. Yeah, absolutely. Um so I, I try to spend a lot of time with my students um, in you know that auto rotative descent so that they can learn the sight picture for various airspeeds and just learn and feel comfortable flying in auto rotation. Period, um, because that first step is what really is going to make the difference um, for them to be able to kind of calm down and then notice their descent rate and how it's going to relate to where they're going to end up in a field and vice versa. When do you start auto rotation and when you're teaching or in someone's process of becoming a helicopter pilot, is it like pretty early on because you know that it could happen at any moment or do you have to wait until you know that they kind of have some kind of idea of what they're doing or is it really close to their solo? It's pretty early on and definitely before, before they go solo. Um, so, so, uh, I would say usually around the 10 hour mark, we start introducing some upper air auto rotations, uh, which is where we would just enter auto rotation, um, to get used to that phase of flight and then recover at like 800 feet, um, and then climb back up and, and do it again. Um, and then eventually graduate to doing it with a flare down to the ground and et cetera. Um, is there any student that kind of, can you tell early on if someone's going to pick it up faster than others? Those are kind of warning or not warning signs, but are they like cues to see that some pilots or some helicopter pilots can do this better than others or do some, do most of them kind of take the same amount of time? You know, it's different for everyone and someone might really excel at one area and not do so well at other areas. It also really depends on the day because uh, if you have something else going on uh, in your life that's distracting you from the flight, um, that can have a really drastic impact on your flying more than you would ever realize. 
And, um, so I would say it's, it's so hard to tell it's different every flight. And as an instructor, you kind of have to be prepared for that. You have to be ready for anything at any time. And, um, yeah, there's no way to really tell if somebody's going to be able to do something a certain way or, you know, understand what you said at that particular moment with those particular set of circumstances. Yeah, for sure. And I kind of forgot to ask this question earlier. So I'm going to go back a little bit and we kind of talked about it before we started recording, but for you personally, you mentioned that you're from the Southeast in the United States. You, you toured North America building these cable parks, but why did you choose to do your training up in Canada versus the United States? So, you know, like I said before, British Columbia is known to be an amazing place to train to fly helicopters. Uh, the train that we have access to in a relatively short amount of time is unprecedented. And we're able to kind of take off and land uh, in these places that are so remote and uh, allow us to have a really, really unique training ground. Um, and there's a lot of heli helicopter um, activity uh, in British Columbia because of the train and how remote places are. Uh, some places, you know, are only accessible by helicopter and no other means. Um, so there's a, there's a very big helicopter industry here. We have a lot of logging roads that we have access to and really um, high terrain. Uh, we can basically get up to mountains that are above 6,000 feet in less than 20 minutes of flight time. So it provides a really unique training environment, all while operating from a base that's only 200 feet above sea level. Yeah, you can't really get that many other places, can you? No. So we have mountains, valleys, rivers, ocean, um, anything you can imagine besides desert. We don't have any deserts here. Um, but the weather condition is another thing. So BC is known for some incredible uh, weather conditions. So uh, you're going to learn to fly in some really nasty weather. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely interesting. I haven't done too much flying up there. I've actually don't think I've ever flown up there in general. So I, I couldn't speak for it for myself, but I've actually, I've heard that from many people that it can be pretty interesting. Aviation, I interrupt today's Pilot to Pilot podcast with a message from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Why you might ask? Well, you might be finding yourself with some free time and you always thought, maybe I can make a better podcast than Justin. Well, here is your chance to do so. Go to anchor.fm or the Anchor app and you can download it for free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money, that's right, money for your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need in one place to make a podcast. Go to Anchor app or anchor.fm to get started today. Yeah, I mean, the, the coastal mountains here are known for that, and it's, uh, it's a great place to learn to fly. What, uh, what was the process like you being an American going up to Canada to learn how to fly? Did you have to kind of, uh, apply for anything to the government? To, I mean, obviously you're still an American citizen, right? So you, you go up there and you have to apply for a visa. Is it like a visa to a student visa, just a standard like college student visa. And then you go out, grow throughout your ratings. Actually, no. Um, so the course that we offer here at BC helicopters is a four month um, hundred hour commercial course. Um, and because 
as an American citizen, uh, you can come to Canada for, on a visitor visa for six months. Um, you don't actually need a student visa to come here for the four-month training. So that's what I did initially. I obviously had to get a visa once I decided to stay and work here, and that's a completely different story. And this program, the four-month program, you get all your certifications that you need to be a helicopter pilot, I'm guessing, instrument, commercial, private. Um, are they Canadian certificates or do they have FAA certificates too? No. So it's all Canadian and it's very unique in Canada because you can actually go straight to commercial without a private license. Um, so it's an incredibly uh, unique uh, situation compared to training in the U.S. where you do go private, instrument, commercial, CFI, that sort of thing. Sounds like a good way to save a little bit of money. Yeah, in some ways, but the uh, the commercial license in the States actually requires 150 hours. So if you do want to go back to the States, it does take a little bit more time building to then get your rating and, and go back to the States and, and uh, do the conversion. Um, the other interesting thing is instrument ratings for helicopters are not very common in Canada. Uh, in Canada, uh, instrument ratings are usually um, sought by pilots who want to fly um, twin engine helicopters with two crew. Um, so most you know, helicopter pilots in Canada that holds a commercial license don't actually have an instrument rating. Versus in the US, most jobs require you to have an instrument rating even though you're not going to be flying on instruments um, for the helicopters. So that's a very, very unique difference between the U.S. and Canada on the requirement of, a, of an instrument rating. How much instrument time do you have? How much time do you spend with students in clouds at all? Or do you not really do that at all? No, we don't, we don't go any, um, into any clouds and, and helicopter. Um, but uh, we do do a lot of hood time in the course and a lot of recovery from usual attitudes. Uh, the commercial requirement requires 10 hours of, of hood time. Uh, so we do do that. Um, but uh, other than that, that's the extent of the instrument training here. That's intense. It's funny to hear the differences between different countries and how they, they think that they should, um, they should have the requirements for their ratings and their licenses and what they believe is right. You know, Because at the end of the day, we're all pilots and I'm sure most of the time the skills can be pretty similar and the, the pilot skill isn't going to be that different. And I'm sure there's some countries that there could be worse pilots than others and some systems are worse, but it, they seem to both work in their own way. So it's just really funny to think about how one country can do something so differently. Yeah, the helicopter industry in Canada and the US is, is very different. And the instrument um, rating is definitely one of the key differences there. Um, do you have any plans to come back to the States and uh, to fly down here or you think you're going to see the rest of your career out up there? Yeah, I mean, initially I was intending to come back right away, um, but then I had this opportunity present itself and now I'm here for the foreseeable future. Um, I'm not sure uh, if I will uh, come back or when I will come back. And I actually don't have a U.S. license uh, to fly in the U.S. currently. So I'm uh, working on getting that conversion sorted um, so that I can eventually come back. But I'm not 100% sure. I'm really enjoying my time here in Canada and have come to really like the helicopter industry here. 
since you're in the, the middle of it or since maybe you're the beginning steps of it, what does the conversion look like for someone that has a rating in Canada and wants to, to make that happen and, and fly in the States? So it's overall, it's pretty easy. Um, so you have to have at least um, 150 hours total time on helicopter. Um, and you need to do a foreign license validation, which basically you fill out this paperwork and they validate that you actually hold a valid license in Canada. Um, once the FAA completes that validation process, you have to do a knowledge test and then go to your local FISDO office and um, do an interview um, with your test results and a medical. Uh, and once they validate your logbook, you have a commercial license in the U.S. Oh, wow. So there's no like practical check ride or anything? No. Wow, that's pretty cool. I didn't realize. I figured they'd have like you go up with some kind of a check airman or someone that can a DPE and go do like at least a private or a commercial check ride just to make sure you know what you're doing. But I'm guessing that interview also kind of requires some technical questions, maybe, or is it just a straight up interview about your your logbook and kind of understand what you've gone through? You know, I'm not 100 percent sure, um, but um, I'm sure it's it's somewhat thorough. You're going to do a YouTube series on it so you can help uh, educate the rest of the helicopter pilots how to do it? Yeah, definitely. We're definitely going to be doing that because there's a question that I commonly get and something that uh, I would really like to have, uh, you know, a good base of knowledge in. Absolutely. And in the beginning, you mentioned that you kind of had an idea. You didn't know helicopter or fixed wing. Was there kind of an internal struggle in you choosing that one or was it pretty clear that you just wanted to fly helicopters? No, it was pretty clear that I wanted to fly helicopters. Um, what is it about helicopters that just makes it so much cooler than uh, fixed-wing planes for you? Well, it, it goes back uh, a long time. Uh, actually, before I was even born. Uh, so in <clears throat> 1985, my mom was a flight nurse um, on... Um, helicopter EMS, um, in, based in Ohio. And, uh, and so she flew as a flight nurse and I knew that growing up. So that was something that I always had, uh, to kind of base my love of helicopters off of. That's really cool. Does she still do that kind of stuff? No. So she doesn't, she doesn't fly, uh, flying helicopters anymore. Uh, she was a nurse, uh, still up until recently, but not, uh, flying in helicopters anymore. That's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, that's definitely a way to, to be interested in helicopters and kind of be thrown into it. So that's definitely a cool thing. Do you ever plan on getting a, maybe your private license in an airplane at all? Are you pretty happy with just being a helicopter pilot? No, I'm definitely uh, eager to get uh, my private license and, and maybe more um, in fixed wing. I would definitely like to be dual rated. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I was going to say, oh, I just had a question. I lost it, but yeah, no, I mean, helicopters to me just seem so foreign. Like I said, like I know nothing about them. And I usually when people know nothing about them, they're usually either one of two things. They're either like eager to learn, either to dig in and eager to start training or eager to to want to do that. Or they're kind of just like fearful and like they write it off immediately. So I think my right now where I stand, I just write it off immediately. And it's just kind of like, I'm glad that that makes other people happy, but they're just so foreign to me. And I, I think I need to go take a lesson or go fly one just so, cause I, I bet I would fall in love with it. Cause at the end of the day, it's still flying a, uh, something really, really cool. And kind of just to understand that would be pretty fun. Yeah. And, uh, it's definitely a slippery slope. So I'd be careful, <laughs> uh, taking a flight in one if you, uh, 
unless you really want to go for it. <laughs> Quit my job and go uh, go up and join you up in British Columbia. <laughs> exactly. I don't think my wife would appreciate that too much. That's funny. Um, what do you see? So obviously right now you're an instructor up there. What just what do you see in the the helicopter community? Do you see the kind of the pilot shortage that we did see, you know, in the past, I would say now in a month or two, was it kind of, were you training like crazy? Were you busy like crazy? Or was it kind of, or is it not the case? Like, I'm guessing what I'm saying, is there a huge pilot shortage on the, in the future? Like there is in fixed wing or is it kind of, you guys have all the pilots you need or what's, what's kind of the outlook look like for the helicopter industry? So uh, the thing they like to say in the helicopter industry is there's, not a necessarily a pilot shortage, but there's an experienced pilot shortage. Um, and one of the m- most challenging aspects of, of getting into the helicopter industry is that experience gap. Um, so getting from, you know, getting your commercial license is one thing, but then trying to find a job that matches your experience level is not very easy. Um, and it's a really tricky transition to get from that entry level, um, just out of school, just got your license to actually flying something and being trusted with, with that machine. Well, are there any tips and tricks to, to win the trust? Cause it sounds like you probably won the trust of where you are right now. Is it just to, to show that you continue learning that you have a true love for this? Yeah, you know, a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time, which was definitely something that helped me. Um, but yeah, you have to, you know, be reliable, committed, and show that you're kind of willing to do whatever it takes to uh, to make it happen. What do you say to someone that is listening to this right now and they're like, oh my gosh, the screw fixed wing flying. This is what I want to do. I'm going to go binge watch all Sam Adams videos. What's kind of the the recommendation, the advice that you'd give someone listening to this that wants to become a helicopter pilot? Maybe they want to follow your track, but what are kind of maybe three things or just a couple of things that you would give them for advice? I would definitely say uh, start networking with uh, people that you know that might know someone in the industry right away. Uh, it's really important to, uh, to start early with... Um, you know, networking and getting your name out there. Um, the next would be making sure that it's something that you're, you know, really passionate about um, because it is a long, hard road and there's, you know, it's, you know, every single day is going to be an uphill battle um, even when you have the hours. Um, and lastly, I would say uh, just to uh, n- not give up and just, if you want it, you got to keep going. Seems to be similar things with uh, the fixed wing world too. Yeah, <laughs> I'd imagine it. It's, yeah. uh, and there's a lot more obviously that you could wrap into that, but uh, those are definitely the key things. What's the typical like dream job of a helicopter pilot? Is it uh, to fly kind of big twin engine um, turbine helicopters or is it just kind of have the fun with it and kind of see where it goes? I would say that kind of depends on where you live and where you're from because, uh, you know, based on where you're located, uh, helicopters are going to be used for different things. Um, but yeah, I would say most people want to fly bigger machines. Um, and, but not everyone wants to fly the big, big machines. Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a balance there, but definitely uh, one that has a lot of power and capability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants to fly uh, a powerful aircraft, right? 
Yeah. No, All right, man. I have uh, a couple rapid fire section or rapid fire questions for you. And these are just going to be the first, your answers are going to be the first thing that comes to your mind and the quickest answer you can possibly have. You ready for it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This is going to be kind of a helicopter pilot to kind of make it toward you as well. But this was the first question is me about just airplane in general. So what's your favorite airplane? So this could be a fixed wing plane and then I'll ask about the helicopter as well. Favorite airplane I would say is some type of bush plane, like a Cessna 170. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right, what about helicopter? What's your favorite helicopter? Uh, A-Star B3. No idea what that is, but I'm sure it's great. It's great. <laughs> What's the <laughs> ugliest helicopter you've ever seen? Ugliest helicopter? Oh, that's a tough one. I would say... Uh, I don't know, man. That's a tough one. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. I didn't know if there was like a, a set known answer. Like everyone's like, man, that thing is ugly. Or because there's some <laughs> airplanes that people just think are just flat out ugly. Probably a coaxial helicopter of some sort, except the K-Max is, is, uh, to look it is up. pretty cool. What's, uh, what's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Uh, I would say making decisions on weather was something that I did not understand and uh, wish I knew how much that factors into everyday operations. Sounds like you had to learn that the hard way. <laughs> I would say that everyone learns that the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. Uh, who is someone in the industry that you would like to meet most? They could be living, they could have passed on just anyone, airplanes or just aviation in general, helicopter, airplanes, whatever that you would like to meet most. I would say Fred North for sure. Okay. What's your favorite thing about aviation? Uh, just the people meeting everyone and uh, everyone is so passionate about it. Uh, so it's really cool to have a common interest in aviation. And, you know, you can always have a great conversation with someone involved in aviation. What's the hardest approach you've ever had to fly? Mm. Just to some, any kind of approach land. Obviously you said you don't really do too much IFR stuff. So it's going to be maybe the most challenging visual conditions you've ever been in, or it could be just like maybe a spot landing or somewhere in the mountains or wherever. Uh, we have some pretty tricky helipads here. Um, th some logging runs and, uh, depending on the wind condition, it can get pretty hairy. So I would say, uh, a mountain helipad with, uh, with some really tough wind condition would be the, the hardest approaches we've flown. What's your favorite helipad to land at? Uh, I would say the Harbor in downtown Vancouver is a pretty awesome one. Do you have a least favorite one? Least favorite? Mm, I don't think I have a least favorite. Yeah, that's good. Maybe one day. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's say you are kind of, maybe you're doing a cross country in a helicopter or you're flying from airport to airport. Like I said, I don't really know how the training works, but you stop and land, you're really hungry. You want to grab some food. You grab a crew car to go get some food. What's your go-to food of choice? Uh, man, probably a burger yeah. with some fries. That's always good. Can't go wrong with that. Nah. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or cities? Mountains, 100%. Um, Airbus or Boeing? I'm guessing they both make helicopters. It might be uh, get some flack for not knowing that, but <laughs> do they both make helicopters? Yeah, Airbus, 100%. All right. Airbus, I've seen the Airbus, maybe it's kind of the futuristic hel helicopters that they want to build and they seem like they're pretty cool. Yeah, they uh, they make the A-Star B3, so that's my uh, go-to. That makes sense. <laughs> Would 
Would you rather fly long trips or short trips? So let's say one, like, I don't know what, how long, the longest flight possible you can do in a helicopter or maybe eight helicopter rides. Would you rather do the long one or the short one? Uh, short cycles uh, would be ideal somewhere. Um, I mean, we usually don't do long haul flights in the heli, but it can get pretty boring if you're not uh, yeah. taking off and landing. <laughs> What's the hardest check ride you have to take? Uh, I would say probably my instructor ride was, was the most, uh, mentally challenging for me. Um, it's, it's really difficult to, um, instruct someone who, you know, knows what's right and what's wrong. I think it's much easier to instruct, uh, someone who doesn't know. Um, so when you actually get in there with a student, I think your confidence level goes way up, but when you are being evaluated, it's a totally different story. Yeah. I would hundred percent agree. I'm not a flight instructor, but I would imagine that having to try to teach someone that quote unquote knows everything would be very difficult and almost impossible because you don't know, like you don't know what they don't know when they do know everything, you know, but when you have kind of a blank canvas and you can just teach them what, just teach them the way that you think should be done. That's pretty much the sounds like it'd be the easiest route. Yeah. It's uh it's, definitely weird to constantly be changing hats and deciding, you know, how many hours they're at now. And then next thing you know, they're at three hours and then they're at 20 hours and then 30 hours and juggling that is really difficult. I bet. What is the biggest win in your career so far? Ah, getting a job in the industry. (laughs) What's the biggest regret you have in your career so far? Ah, a lot of people say it's that they didn't start earlier. Yeah, I would say that that's probably true as well. But I am I am happy with uh, having the experience in another industry um, prior uh, as something that I can always fall back on if if something were to happen in this industry. Absolutely, and maybe one day you can do both. Maybe you can uh, build cable parks and you can fly your helicopter to and from them. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Well, Sam, congratulations, man. You have pretty much passed the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Um, I don't have any other questions for you unless there's anything else. Maybe I missed out on a crazy story you'd want to tell or anything like that. Yeah, I would say there is one uh, crazy story. It's kind of the, uh, uh, like I said, uh, the reason that I got into helicopters with my mom flying for um, helicopter EMS, right? Yeah, what you got? So it's... uh, It's 1985, which is, like I said, five years before I was born. And my mom's flying for, uh, as a backseat uh, flight nurse. And uh, they were out on a call one night. It It was in December. It was in the middle of the night and she was working in Northwest Ohio. And they got into some fog. Uh, So the pilot made a decision to turn back to base. Um, but in the process of turning back, uh, he lost reference, um, and they actually ended up going down in some trees. Um, and unfortunately my mom was the only one who survived that crash. So, you know, my whole life, I've always been referencing this, um, because it's, you know, pretty powerful to to think about in the sense that if my mom didn't survive this crash, I wouldn't even exist. And 
you know, anytime I'm going through a tough time or, you know, things aren't really lining up the way I expect them to, I just always think about how lucky I am to just be alive. What, how and, hard was it for uh, your mom to, to want you to be a helicopter pilot with going through that experience? You know, my parents have always supported me in everything I've wanted to do. So I can't really say that they had any hesitation at all when I told them that I wanted to be a pilot and fly helicopters. Um, so, I mean, I couldn't be more thankful for their support um, through this. They've supported me in everything that I've ever done. I've never questioned any of my decisions or, um, or actions. Have you taken your mom up in a helicopter ride at all? Or is she kind of like, nope, never again. Thanks, but no thanks. No, no, I've taken her up a few That's times. Awesome. Um, yeah, so my, my mom's story and, and being able to, to come out of that crash uh, is pretty incredible. Uh, the photos from the crash are unbelievable. Um, and the fact that she walked out of that is just incredible. Um, she was, uh, like I said, it happened at about three in the morning. Um, and she was trapped for about, I think, six hours or so, um, severely injured. And they actually didn't know what happened to the helicopter. Um, so the next morning, they put out an um, a th- uh, announcement on the morning news uh, to see if anyone knew where this helicopter was because it went missing. And... Uh, a farmer in the area had heard the helicopter fly over his house the night before. So he decided to go out and check his fields to see if he could find it. And he ended up finding it on the edge of one of his fields in a row of trees and then was able to uh, get help to my mom, which is, I mean, surviving a crash like that is pretty incredible. No, that's a, that's a miracle for sure. Especially since you said being pinned and being locked there for six hours and having no immediate help. Like that's incredible, man. Yeah. It, it's pretty astonishing. So that was kind of the, uh, the seed and something I always, you know, reference back to and was like, okay, I really want to learn to fly helicopters. Cause I'd love to take my mom for a flight in one. And I've done that a few times now and it's, it's been really, really good. And she even actually went back and flew as a flight nurse again, even after the accident. For real? So, Dang, good for yeah, her. Pretty incredible. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where it, it started. And the story from there gets even crazier. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> I don't know how it could get crazier, but let's go. <laughs> so uh, I guess, uh, when I first started to get the, uh, feeling that I wanted to start to possibly change careers and pursue helicopters, I started to, you know, talk to my friends and see what they thought of me becoming a helicopter pilot. And a majority of them were supportive, but there were some that were like, I don't know, that doesn't seem like that's really going to fit you. Cause they knew me more of a, you know, an engineering type personality and someone who's, you know, always tinkering with things and building things. And they're like, I don't know that I necessarily see you as a pilot. So I would 
then tell them the story about my mom. And that would usually change their opinion. And after um, talking to maybe like five or six friends, I had a friend that didn't believe me. So I was like, well, I can, I can show you the news article um, of the crash. So I went on Google and I, I searched, you know, archive news articles and I found the article about the crash and I sent it to my friend. After reading the article again, I went down to the very bottom of the article and I found a Facebook comment section and there was a comment there and it said, um, I'm the daughter of the pilot who died in the crash. I'm looking for the flight nurse. Can anyone help me find her? And at that moment, I, I mean, I was in shock. I could not believe what I was reading. So I called my sister and I told her the story about me wanting to become a pilot and then the article and about the comment and asked her if I thought I should tell mom. And she said, yeah, you should. So I called my mom, told her that I wanted to become a helicopter pilot, told her about the article and told her about the Facebook comment. And she was obviously in disbelief as well. So we agreed that I would message this individual and, and, uh, and let them know that I could get them in contact with my mom. So I sent the message and about three days later, I got a response back. And it was this just rapid fire of questions and answers on Facebook Messenger, back and forth, back and forth. And by the end of it, um, I was able to connect um, my mom with this person and they had a really awesome conversation. Um, I think it was like a two or three hour phone call and it connected a lot of dots um, for them. Uh, you know, because my mom had a lot of survivor's guilt from the accident and a lot of other things going on because, you know, it's a pretty tragic um, event. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, crazy to think about. And um, yeah, and I've since become friends with them as well and talked to them a bunch throughout my training. And it's just been really interesting to, to have that connection. Um, and that was kind of the, uh, you know, the motivation to just go for it. That's crazy, man. <laughs> that is intense. Like you said, just the crash alone and then kind of building up to, to finding the article, finding a Facebook comment. Like what are the chances you find this Facebook comment to connect your mom with the pilot's daughter? Like that's just, that's pretty intense. Oh man, it was incredibly intense. And I'm honestly just getting chills just talking about it now as I often do. Um, just because it's such a wild story. And there's been so many things like that that have happened throughout the training that really solidified it for me. And I would say the last thing that really solidified it for me um, was my commercial uh, flight test or check ride. And I went through my whole training and it got to the point where I was ready to do my flight test. And it had got bumped around a bunch of days because of weather. Uh, so there was a lot going on 
uh, with scheduling and the weather. And it was really hard to find a date that worked for, for everything. And we finally got a date and everything lined up, went out and did my flight, flew horribly, probably the worst, worst flight I ever flew. Uh, but I ended up passing and it was amazing. I was super excited. I called my mom and I was like, and I told her the good news and she was really excited. And, uh, the conversation was pretty short because I had to go and sign some paperwork and, um, get everything sorted. So I told her I'd call her later that night. So later that night I gave her a call and she, uh, I remember I was like walking into the grocery store and she goes, you know what today is, right? And I was like, uh, no, the day I became a commercial pilot. And she is like, no, it's the anniversary of my crash. And I was like, what? And I just stopped dead in my tracks because I had no idea. I knew the anniversary was coming up, but I didn't even think about it that day at all through the entire flight. Um, and it was just incredible to think that how that happened. It was not planned. It was not even a, a thought in my mind. Um, but that was kind of the last thing that I was like, yeah, I'm definitely doing the right thing. Dang, man. That, yeah. You, I think you're definitely doing the right thing and you're right where you need to be. That's an incredible story, man. And I appreciate you, you opening up and sharing that here and just kind of telling that because I mean, obviously it's a very personal and kind of, it's what crafted you into the pilot that you are and helped you make the decisions that you did to become the helicopter pilot that you wanted to become. And I think it's really cool that you are doing what you're doing. And I think obviously you're doing it for a reason. So I look forward to kind of following your story more. And I look forward to, to seeing your story play out and seeing how you can help change the, the world, as Gary Vee would say, by documenting and not creating, you know? Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, uh, my mom's accident definitely uh, has a strong influence on how I fly, uh, how I think about different flights and the safety of different conditions with weather. Um, and yeah, it's really important to me. Uh, one of the reasons why I decided to, uh, purchase a flight helmet straight out of the gate. Uh, I've basically never flown a flight without a flight helmet, uh, which is, you know, very common in Canada, but not so common in the U S. Um, and safety is absolutely number one for me. And I have a very strong foundation in that. So, uh, I definitely have learned a lot from, from that and hope to, uh, continue that throughout my career. Definitely. And you're spot on safety is the most important thing. And I think you being where you are and being able to teach future helicopter pilots is kind of right where you need to be and right where you can help make a huge difference in people's lives because you can ingrain how important safety is and how it's okay to say no. It's okay to say no. It's okay to walk away from a flight before things could end up bad, you know? So ingraining that in your students, especially early on, will help them make decisions future in their career. Because a lot of times I've talked about before, the hardest thing in aviation as you continue down your career, as you continue down your path and when you get jobs is 
learning to say no. That's the most important thing you can ever do is when to say no to your boss, when to say no to a flight, when to say no when you just don't feel comfortable and the importance of learning that. And I think with you, with having that in your past and kind of having that kind of uh, in your mind and thinking about that and using it to teach safety and to teach kind of just the same thing I just talked about, I think that's huge. And I think you're making a real difference. Yeah, it's it's huge. And uh, it's so easy to talk about saying no but it's never easy to actually say no when you're in the situation. Um, so that's, that's really important. And I always come back to, um, uh, I have kind of a, a, a rule where uh, three strikes you're out kind of thing. Uh, so if you, if there's three things that go wrong, um, either in the preparation or during, or, you know, some, it could be anything. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be related to the flying. It could just be, you know, you feel weird and you got a weird text message from someone that made you think twice about something, or, you know, you were in traffic and it caused you to be late. So you're rushing. It could be anything, but it's always seems like if you follow that three strike, don't fly rule, I think it's saved me on more than one occasion. Yeah. I like that rule because when you look at accidents, when you look at stuff that has happened, whether it's in TSB or wherever it is in Canada, they are able to compile not just one thing that went wrong, but they're able to compile multiple steps or, or things that may have been neglected or may have been looked bad or things going against the pilot and they can build on those and they can kind of not necessarily narrow it down. I mean, I'm sure there's one decision that kind of may ultimately made the crash, but there seems to be multiple steps that line up to making an accident happen. And if you can limit that to your three-step rule, like you said, and after three, you're like, all right, maybe I'm not in the right headspace. Maybe it's just not the right day for me. You know, I need to go home and just, we'll come back tomorrow and do this again. Yeah. It's in your, you're, you're right. It's a, it's a chain of events and you break one link in the chain and it doesn't happen. So you have to be prepared to, to do that at any moment. Yeah, and you, the, I think the important thing is to to not let it be an ego-driven thing. That's why aviation can be so dangerous is when you get macho and you start thinking about how great you are and how nothing can happen to you, you know, those kind of whole mindsets. It's you just have to really be humble in your approach to this industry, really be humble to take every flight as a new flight. It's like, yeah, maybe you landed with a 30-knot crosswind before, but it's like, maybe that wasn't the smartest idea or maybe the conditions are different. Maybe you have more pressure on you. Maybe there's stuff going on in your life, you know? take everything into account when you're making a decision. Yeah, 100%. And uh and it's really really important to to have those, you know, personal minimums or or rules and then stick to them. Yeah. And not absolutely. deviate from them. It's easy to not stick to them too. It's easy to see someone else going out and doing that and telling this really crazy story about how I did this and you know, that we're all in aviation. We all have egos to some extent. Like I said, it's not good, but you always want to be like, have the better story. So you have to really have to check yourself and understand the importance of checking yourself. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's uh overconfidence is, is not usually a good thing. Yeah, no, it's a, if it doesn't, if you, you might be okay nine times out of 10, but it's just that one time where something else is going to happen. And then you are completely in a situation that you don't want to find yourself in. So it only takes one thing to happen that can push you over the edge of where you're comfortable or even if you were in the operating in the zone of being a little bit uncomfortable, it only takes one other thing to push it to to make it even more drastic or make it more severe. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, Sam, like I said, I appreciate you coming on, man. I think uh, this is a great conversation and uh, I, I 
could talk to you forever about this kind of stuff because safety is so important in the decision-making. And I appreciate, like I said, you sharing that story about your mom. And I'm sure your mom is very proud to see you be the helicopter pilot that you are. And I'm sure she's loving that you're doing that. I'm sure she has a little hesitation too, but I mean, that's just what any mother (laughs) would as well. And you tell them you want to go be a pilot, but I thank you for coming on, man. I'm excited for this episode to come out and I think it can help a lot of people. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm really uh, excited to, uh, to finally connect with you and uh, to share my story. Absolutely. And we can debrief it a little bit after this, but I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, man. See ya. Aviation, thank you so much for listening to episode number 105 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you did, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. Trying to catch up to Ankle of Attack on followers. He's got me by about 20,000 followers. So I need all the help I can get. So go ahead and help me catch Ankle of Attack with those followers. It's, uh, it's my goal now is to, to be as cool as him on Instagram. But Aviation, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you to Bailey for the Patreon of the week. I really appreciate that. Also, check out the hats and the t-shirts. We only have 10 hats left. That's insane. I might be ordering more soon. I'm not sure how it's looking with all uh, all the companies are creating only essentials and uh, a hat, believe it or not, is not an essential. So who knows? I'll be able to order more anytime soon. So make sure you get one of the last 10. Aviation, I hope you're having a great day. I hope you're staying safe. And as always, 